You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? for even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word that you have spoken to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus, that you have spoken to us by your spirit in this word now for us for all time. So we pray now that we would sit well underneath it, that we would be humble listeners, that we would be um, expectant disciples of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would conform us more and more to his image. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is a lower elementary week. So if you've got a sticker on as a first through third grader, kinder through third grader, whoever you are, and you want to go out and talk, I think about Jesus healing a man lowered through the ceiling. We'll miss you guys and look forward to seeing you back. Well, hello everyone. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, It's good to see you all this evening. Uh, Thanks, uh, Michelle, wherever you are, for leading, and Luke coming back over to DSC. Matt and Lindsay are here. Uh, I didn't expect them to be here. Lindsay had a baby on Wednesday, and so we're glad for, uh, yeah, for Michelle and Luke to help lead us this evening, but good to see you guys tonight. Uh, Well, we have often thought about how limited our English word for love is, that I can use the same word to describe my feelings toward my wife, and the same word to describe my feelings toward my sons, to you all, and to pizza and Star Wars, and yet we primarily talk about love as our internal feelings about something or someone. It is when we talk about love, our internal disposition, even something that I don't have any control over. Like we fall in love, like it accidentally happens to us. In the same way, we talk about falling out of love, like things just happen to us. Love is some force that comes and goes. We can't control who we love, and so all love is equal because, again, it's not something we do. It's something that happens to us. Love is a noun. Love is love. Love wins. Love is something that then does something. And yet, if 
you were a product of the early 90s evangelicalism like me, you had a, would have been catechized differently in understanding that love is a noun. You would have known that you see a big V stood beyond the word, and yo, that's when it hit me that love is a verb. That is, I'm pretty sure, my third DC Talk reference in the last year, and I can't stop and I won't stop. Uh, all of you like Generation Z out there who are looking scoldingly down your noses, I know that love is a verb because of DC Talk. Well, we are right smack dab in the middle of Jesus's Sermon on the Plain, the level place in Luke 6, which is, like we thought about last week, one of the greatest teachings of philosophy in all of human history. Here, Jesus is setting out for his disciples the flourishing life, the good life. It's a bit confusing because this life is all upside down. Last week, my kids were still confused with Jesus's teaching and with my sermon because it doesn't make any sense, right? We thought about that Jesus taught that blessed, happy, flourishing are you when you are poor, when you are hungry, when you are sad, when you are persecuted. That doesn't make any sense. But it does make sense if we understand that God uses changing external circumstances in our lives to then cement our eternal trust in him, in his unchanging character, and in his promises. And by doing so, he brings then present joy. He brings present contentment. And then he will also bring future life and future uh, life in uh, the fullness of his character for eternity. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He's now going to lay out a, a move from an internal feeling and understanding of who God is, of this right-side-up blessed life, to now moving from the internal being of, of being Jesus' disciple to now external action. Not so much with a list of to-dos, but a description of to-bes. The kind of person with internal and external alignment of both heart and hands, of inner and outer person. And so a heart that truly loves God will inevitably then spill out into love for others. Jesus is far from the first philosopher to ever teach about love. He is even following in a long line of Jewish teachers of the law who preach about love. But while his message carries similarities to what we and what his original audience would have expected to hear, he then surprises us. He surprises any of his hearers. Uh, he surprises humanity's deepest sensibilities by, again, flipping over what we would expect of him to say, what we would expect to be reality. And so we're going to walk through his teaching tonight under three headings, who to love, how to love, and why to love. Who to love, how to love, why to love. So first of all, in verses 27 through 30, who to love, and I know, I know whom to love, you snooty pants out there, but verse 27, he says, but I say to you who hear, and again, he's talking to his disciples here, I say to you who hear, my disciples, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Now, there is a whole lot, again, in the Old Testament about love. There are commands to love your neighbor. But again, this, what Jesus has just said, is unparalleled and completely new. Some in Jesus' day had even begun teaching and summarizing an Old Covenant or Old Testament ethic as love your neighbor, yes, and hate your enemy. In their understanding, 
There is corruption out there in the world, outside of the people of God. There is corruption out there that is defaming God's glory and is a threat, is a threat to God's glory and is a threat to us, the people of God. And what do we as people do with threats? We eliminate them. But Jesus says, no, do not eliminate. Do not even hate your enemies, love them. Now, this doesn't mean that people like Joshua in the Old Testament misunderstood God and his commands to take the land, often by force. And by the way, we're going to get through chapter 8 in Luke's gospel here. And then at the beginning of May, we're going to take a break and spend the whole summer in the book of Joshua. Uh, We're going to finish Luke in four big chunks over the next couple of years uh, with breaks in between. And we'll come back to chapter 9 in August. But we're going to take the summer to understand why Joshua wasn't wrong to take the land and to do what he was doing and leading the people and why it isn't that Jesus is now trying to fix all of Joshua's mistakes. Nor is this Jesus revealing a new, now matured and enlightened God, a God of love. No, God is unchangeable in his character, in his wisdom and love, and Jesus affirms all of the Old Testament as good and as true and as as wise. And yet, while all of that is true, Jesus is doing something new here. Not only is he about to institute a new covenant in which God binds himself to a people not merely on ethnic or hereditary grounds, a covenant with blessings and promises that get handed down generationally through a people of Abraham, But now, he's bringing a new covenant with blessings and promises, not dependent on your first birth, of who your father and your mother were, but your second birth, of who your father in heaven is, through a people not of Abraham, but now of Jesus. His people will not be a visible nation state, but a kingdom of invisible borders, with authority now in local assemblies, local churches of God's people, rather than governments and kings. And so, now understanding all of this that is about to happen, Jesus says, here, now, love your enemies. While there is no command in the Old Testament to hate your enemies, you can perhaps understand why some might have come to that conclusion. This is not what people of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, are to do or are to be, people of hating enemies. But here's the thing, you don't actually need to be a disciple of Jesus to agree with or even live out the command to love your neighbors. Why? Because this is like social sociology or social Darwinism 101, right? It is beneficial for the group to care for, to care about the members of the group. The stronger the internal ties and loyalties of the group, the more resilient the culture will be against outsiders, against threats. And so it's good, it's even somewhat easy to love your neighbors, your neighbors who might share similar traditions, similar values, similar, similar expectations, is kind of like loving yourself. It is a way to love yourself. The more I love you as my neighbor and look out for you, the more that you will love and look out for me. Now, that's not a bad thing. Cultures and societies that have high levels of trust internally can be wonderful cultures. A breakdown in social trust is one of, if not the reason, why there is so much fracture and so much division in American culture today. There is just a lack of trust, of caring for one another as neighbors. But the point is, is that nearly all people love their neighbors. That is, people who have shared values, expectations, and traditions. 
Jesus flips the whole social paradigm, though, on its head and says that those people who are threats to you, both societally and or even individually, we are to love them. The people of Jesus are to love threats, love enemies, do good to them, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Again, like last week, I think around our dinner table tonight, we're going to have to have another debrief conversation because this makes no intuitive sense. What Jesus just said makes no intuitive sense. Now, maybe Jesus was just so wise in understanding the human psyche that he understood what many other philosophers and therapists understand, that hatred and anger can absolutely consume a person from within, that like a fire, anger and vindictiveness and a desire for revenge can just consume and destroy your life. And yet, what Jesus is doing here, he's not necessarily just promoting uh, mental health and mental wellness. He's not offering a way to recover your agency and improve your zen. We're going to tie a bow on all of this on our third point on the why to love, but he is legitimately telling you to be willing to lose yourself, to be willing to uh, consider others more important than yourself, to do good, to bless, and to pray for those who hate or abuse you, not for your sake, but for theirs. It's been said that it is next to impossible to pray for those for whom you hate. Uh, If you hate somebody, it is very difficult to pray for that person. But when you actually begin to pray for a person that you hate, it becomes almost equally impossible to continue to hate that person. Jesus is telling us that when we pray, when we actually begin to understand and love people, we actually begin to love people. That we are able to see enemies as not just our enemies, but just people out there, sinners like ourselves. He goes on to describe who these enemies are that his disciples are to love. He says in verse 29, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Now this verse, especially on the heels of verse 28, where Jesus says to pray for those who abuse you, I don't believe that Jesus is prescribing or even demanding an absolute pacifism of non-reaction or non-violence. We must take this verse, this paragraph, in context of the entire sermon that he's been preaching. What comes before it? Why is he talking about enemies in the first place? Why is he talking about those who hate you and those who abuse you and those who strike you? Remember last week in verse 22, just above it. Blessed are you when people hate you and when when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. Why? On account of the Son of Man. When disciples continue in the way of Jesus, when they love those whom the world says should be ignored, when they preach repentance to both the lowly and the elevated equally, when they commend the humble and confront the proud, this will invite confrontation, will invite anger or abuse. And when this happens on account of the Son of Man, just like what will happen to Jesus' disciples throughout the book of Acts, Jesus is saying, keep on loving your persecutors. The disciples in the book of Acts would consider it joy to be counted worthy to suffer on account of the Son of Man. In fact, This strike or slap on the cheek is very likely a symbolic expulsion from the synagogue by the religious leaders. He's probably talking about, he's already been talking about those who have been reviled or sent out. This is likely a symbolic, get out of here, you're not 
you're no longer worthy or welcome amongst the people of God. Jesus is saying, when that happens, it's okay. You can take it. Or when those who, because they think that they are above the law, when they are accountable to no one because of their place of power or authority, when they take your outer cloak, go ahead and give them your undergarment as well. Now, this is almost certainly hyperbolic. Just like in parallel passages in Matthew 5, Jesus tells his disciples to gouge out their eyes if their eyes are causing them to sin, even though a blind man can still sin without his eyes. Here, he is not advocating that his, his disciples might become well-known for just going around naked, just giving away their clothes to anyone who is mean to them. No, instead, his disciples are not to become well-known for that. They are to be well-known because of their radical love, because of their radical joy, their radical contentment, their radical trust in God as the judge of all man. They do not take matters into their own hands when they are being persecuted on account of their loyalty to Jesus. Now, again, this likely doesn't apply to entire nation states. It likely doesn't even apply to individuals within those nation states refusing to fight in just wars against evil, which would otherwise bring about greater evil or suffering. And in the same way, on a lesser or individual scale, does this, I think, necessarily prevent someone from protecting themselves or protecting the vulnerable, perhaps even with their fists, on a playground, in an alley, And in understanding that we live in a nation of laws, it is absolutely right to report abuse as it happens. This verse has been understood, even embodied by some, to just say, I must bless those who abuse me and just not say anything about it. No, we live in a nation of laws. Jesus is not prescribing a life of quiet timidity that expects evil to continue. But what Jesus does prescribe is the kind of person who Because he or she has become so much like Jesus in the face of great evil and in the face of great suffering, still loves the one who acts in hate, who acts in evil, who sees other people not as threats to be therefore eliminated, but sees the greater evil, sees sin being the thing that is motivating and animating that person. In other words, a a phrase that has become so trite over the decades, but hate the sin and love the sinner. That kind of thing is almost entirely dismissed today. Our culture says that what you do is who you are. And so vindictively, if you say something out of context, or even if you say something on purpose, that one sentence can and should stay with you now for the rest of your life. As a badge of shame, we are a culture of extreme justice and no forgiveness. We are a culture of hate and not love on both sides of the political and cultural spectrum. Our culture teaches us that if you say something that I do not like, I must now hate you forever and I must hope that you are exposed and you are taken down. We'll get to mercy and forgiveness in just a second, but Jesus says, no, not that, not for my people. In verse 30, instead, give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Those who beg, almost certainly some, a, a word like those who demand, those who require of you, those in authority who, in the next phrase, take away your goods. Don't demand them back in justice. And again, Jesus is not requiring that every Christian just ongoingly let themselves get robbed without pursuing any sort of recourse. What he is prescribing, though, is the kind of person who, on account of the Son of Man, holds his possessions so lightly 
that when his disciples are loving in the way of Jesus, they are willing to leave those possessions. Maybe one way to think about all of this is that perhaps if I'm like walking on the UNM campus and I see someone being attacked, I think it is actually good and right and loving for me to get involved, to protect and care for the vulnerable. But if I am out on the UNM campus and I'm sharing the gospel and someone yells at me to shut up and stop sharing these things about Jesus and I keep sharing and this person punches me in the face and steals my bag and runs away, I'm not going to run after that guy. I'm not going to punch him that I can get my bag back for justice's sake. Now, I know that I've just opened a giant can of worms on hypothetical ethical scenarios of what does it mean to do this and that in this situation or that, but that's not my point, and it's not Jesus's point. The question is not, yeah, but what if they fill in the blank? How do I respond then? The question is not on their response. The question is on your response as a disciple of Jesus. Who are you? You are a person, if you are my disciple, who is becoming like me. You are not to only act in love, but you are to embody love. You are to act and react to anyone and everyone with love. All right, if you still have questions, I think Jesus is going to answer them. So let's just keep going. So the first question, who to love, is everyone. Not just your neighbor that you, intu- that you intuitively love, but even your enemies. But how? How practically am I to love? How practically am I to parse out what love might look like in, in ethical hypotheticals? Well, he tells you. In verse 31, he says, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This is the so-called golden rule. And notice a few things about what Jesus says here. He does not say, do good to others so that they will do good to you. Again, that's just selfishness. We can imagine this. Like you've just come out of Starbucks and you see the meter maid putting a parking ticket under your windshield wipers. And you put on a big smile and you run up and say, oh my goodness, I was so late, but I have this latte. Would you like this latte? That's not love for this person. That's just bribery. That's trying to be nice to someone so that you can get out of a parking ticket. Jesus, again, is not offering tips for effective negotiation or managing people. This isn't just self-interest. But nor is he saying that the way that I want things to be done is the way that I should do it to others. This just elevates my own preferences and assumes that these preferences are universal goods. Like, I like to tell people the way it is. I like to hear from other people about the way it is, so I'm going to tell. I'm going to always tell it like it is. I like people to leave me alone, so I'm going to leave people alone. I like, to, I like for people to always be around me, so I'm going to always be around others. Instead, because verses 27 through 30 show a greater concern and understanding of others, one commentator paraphrases this golden rule like this. As you wish to be treated, with a sensitivity toward toward your preferences, so treat others with a sensitivity to their preferences, right? Like you expect other people to know and understand you. And so if that's the case that you want 
other people to treat you in that way, you treat others in that way. Like, one of my sons has an egg allergy, and the worst thing that you could do for him if he is having a bad day is to bake him a cake and come over and say, I heard you were having a bad day. You just made his bad day much worse. Loving people is knowing people. Loving people is understanding people. And of course, you can't omnisciently know and see through to individual preferences and likes and dislikes and allergies of every single person on the planet. Only God knows that. But the point is, is that we must, as disciples of Jesus, like he has done for us, elevate, at the very least, elevate others to the level, the value at which we value ourselves, or even higher. And again, this isn't just a noun of love, a feeling, an internal feeling or disposition of love. Though it is difficult to truly love someone externally without first feeling love, this is why it is so important for us to pray for and consider the needs of others. There is internal and external alignment. But using the golden rule can be helpful for us to parse out these hypothetical ethical scenarios. Not just like the crazy ones either, like the the scenarios that only come up in like an ethics classroom of like, should you pull the lever to like send the trolley car on this track or that track to kill one person or five or some other ridiculous scenarios like that, but also in real life, like real life scenarios. Like this person that I'm encountering or even thinking about is going through real financial difficulty. This person is going through physical or emotional loss, or even this person is so unkind to me at work. As you wish to be treated with a sensitivity towards your preferences, so treat others with a sensitivity toward theirs. Jesus goes on in verse 32. He's showing that the how of loving all people is more than just what nice people do. In verse 32, he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And he says that even people who, even those people who don't know God lend if they expect to get it back in return. We've thought about many times how all people use and interact with other people, just like we interact and use other commodities in our life. Like, I am willing to pay more money. I am willing to exchange a greater sum of money for a nice steak than I would be for a Taco Bell burrito. I expect that this thing is better than that, so I will give this restaurant more of my money than that one. We are often willing to exchange time, energy, and effort in people that we think will bring us a good time, that in people that we think will bring us an increased social standing. And those people who don't or who won't, well, we humans don't, we aren't willing to put in the same kind of time, the same kind of energy or effort in the kind of people that we think aren't worth it, won't bring about the same kind of return on investment. And yet Jesus is saying, no, no, people made in the image of God are not commodities. People, even the difficult people, even the hateful people are not ways to increase the self in a transactional way. Loving your neighbor, loving those who are easy or transactionally beneficial to love, that's natural. That's what every other human does. But what Jesus is commanding, Jesus, the God-man, 
the supernatural one, the one above nature, the one who is over and above the self-seeking, transactional, fallen, and sinful, selfish human nature. He is actually inviting his people now into a supernatural love. How? Verse 35, love your enemies, do good, lend, expect nothing in return. Again with the enemies here. He's really pushing on the transactional, trans, transactional nature of our relationships, of our interactions. And he might even be putting some like Old Testament imagery of the year of Jubilee in his hearer's mind. Every, ever, uh, every seven years, all debts would be canceled, would be forgiven. If you owed anyone anything, every seven years, that debt is canceled. So if Jubilee was last year, and you come to me today and you ask me for a loan, I know that you have six years to pay back that loan. And in a society of trust, I actually expect that I'm going to get that loan back over the next six years. But what if you come to me like a month before Jubilee? I might be tempted to say, um, why don't you swing back around in like 13 months? Because if I loan you this money a month before the year of Jubilee begins, you owe me nothing. And what Jesus is saying, just like we thought about in Luke 3 from John the Baptist preaching, God's people must be, about, must be a people who is about meeting needs, not creating them. God's people see needs and they meet them with sacrificial generosity, even if I expect to get back nothing. Even if this is a loss, a transactional loss in my life, Jesus is saying your stuff, your money, your relationships are not given to you so that you might use it to get a bigger transactional return on your investment. Instead, out of supernatural generosity of your money, of your time, of your energy, of your investment, give it away. Give it away without any ex expectation of return. Now, some of us in this room might be tempted to think, man, I really hope this person or that person is listening to this sermon. Like, they're really rich, and I could really use some of that cash right now. But this is just using them transactionally. Trust that God is working and transforming the heart of all of his people with patience. Instead of demanding that you must benefit transactionally from their sanctification. That's not the way it works. Because if we start playing that game, then there is undoubtedly someone who is in worse shape than you who could use financial help from you as well. So this is how we are to love in considering the needs of others with a sensitivity towards their preference in expectation that we are all growing in love as God's people with this same kind of love, with kind generosity that may not actually benefit us at all. And in fact, this kind of love in our hearts and in our lives might cost us. Now, we've been dancing around this for a little while now, but let's finally get to the why. We've talked about the, the who and the how, that we are to love all people, including your enemies, that we are to love how with sacrificial generosity, trust in God. But if we have missed the why, then we'll miss all of it. And so why are we to love in this kind of way? If it costs us, why would we do this? Again, everything is not intuitive. Everything is upside down. 
But costly love in the here and now is done for one secondary reason and then for a greater primary reason that Jesus is going to give us. The first and the secondary reason is this. He says in verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Just like last week, this life is short. This life is preparatory for the life which we were actually created to enjoy for eternity. And if we live for the entertainment, if we live for the praise, if we live for the pleasure and the affirmation of today, well, congratulations, you'll have your reward. That's what you wanted, and you'll get it. And then you will be empty and separated from God. You will be separated from all those things that you wanted in the first place, now for eternity. And that's it, a big empty bag of nothing. Instead, if you lift your gaze to a further horizon toward the economy of heaven, then you may actually receive little today. In fact, even if you are operating under this economy of heaven, you might even invite hatred and cursing and persecution towards you. But it will be brief, it is momentary, and it is nothing in comparison to reward for eternity. And what is the reward? What is the inheritance that God's people receive for eternity? They receive himself. They receive God. He is the highest good in all of the universe, and we get him forever. But a second reason for the disciples of Jesus to love in this way is actually more important than reward. Remember back in chapter 3 with John the Baptist, and he was talking a lot about sons, He called the Pharisees, those physical sons of Abraham, he called them a brood of vipers or sons of snakes. Instead, the true sons of Abraham are those who have Abraham's faith and that Jesus was then immediately after announced as the son of God in whom the father is well pleased and that those who come to know Jesus are united to his righteousness so that they too might become sons and daughters of God. Well, here... Jesus says this in verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Now, becoming a son of the Most High is not contingent upon how well you love your enemies. But if we reverse the logic of the end of verse 35, we might say this, because God the Father is kind and grateful or kind to the ungrateful and to the evil, you will be sons of the Most High, meaning children look like their parents. Children take on the norms and the expectations of the household. Love proves pedigree. If you are a person of love, you are a person of the Father. You want to know why sons and daughters of God ought to love their enemies? Because it was love of his enemies that compelled God to make those enemies his sons and daughters. God is love. If this weren't true, then there would be no universe in the first place, out of which the self-satisfied love of the triune God exploded into creation so others might be brought into this eternal and ever-giving love. God is patient and kind. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast covenant love. To whom? To those who make it really, really easy for him to love them? 
to those who are a transactional net positive to him? No, to those who are impossible to love, to those who are separated from his love, to those who hate him, to those who cost him everything. In less than three years' time from this sermon, Jesus himself will have his cloak, his tunic stolen, leaving him naked. He will have both cheeks slapped and punched. He will be cursed. He will be reviled. He will be mocked. He will be shamed. He will be executed. And he does this not because his people are so lovely, but so that he might make them lovely. He might make enemies into sons and daughters. And so in a string of commands, again, not necessarily to do's, but rather to be's, he says, starting in verse 36, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Now, we're not going to spend a ton of time on each of these, even on the judge not, and you will not be judged, except to note that this absolutely does not mean that Jesus' people are prohibited from making moral observations, moral confrontations. Jesus himself does that all the time. And we also should note that from like the early 1990s to like 2015 or 16 or so, this verse was our culture's like favorite verse. Who's to say what's right and wrong? Who are you to judge? But now, now, like, our culture hates that verse. Every corner of society sits in anger. Every corner of society sits in judgment of those whom they disagree with. The kind of judging and condemnation and lack of forgiveness and lack of mercy that Jesus is condemning here is those who hold others in a perpetual state of guilt, who are keeping people from God, never inviting them, never encouraging them toward the grace, the kindness, and the love of God. And so if we withhold grace, if we withhold kindness, if we withhold mercy and love, then there is absolutely no family resemblance. We ought to think, is God my father? Am I walking like my father, talking and loving, acting and reacting like my father? But in acting in the family business and with the family character of generosity and grace, Jesus says, God will give back to you. There is reward. The imagery here is of where he says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, is that of a, a grain salesman out in like a street market. He's selling grain and he has a, a standard pot, a standard measuring pot. And he puts the grain in and he shakes the grain down so it will settle in. And then he presses the grain down, and then he might even have like a, a, a cone that he twists in. He pulls out the cone, and there's a, now a crevice there that he can pour more grain in, push that down, presses it down. He is, that salesman is making sure that you get what you are owed. He's not trying to uh, cheat you. And so Jesus says, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This is both a positive and a negative thing. This is simultaneously promise and warning. The positive promise of reward is not, though, to make an army of mercenaries. An army of mercenaries of God's people who get paid with 
a reward of hard work or for hard work and for risky work. Because even as Jesus' people become more and more like him, what is it that they, what is it that you are owed? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. We have not lived lives of worthy love, of generous, abounding, overflowing love. We have not lived lives worthy of this kind of reward. If anything, we are owed condemnation, separation from God. For the wages of sin is what? Uh, Is death. This is what we have earned for ourselves. But for those who are united to the faithful love and generosity of Jesus, what are you owed? Everything. All of it. All of his blessing. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. All of it. Eternal, overflowing reward that spills out into your lap, that spills out into this life, that of joy and contentment and love and peace and patience. We get the Spirit. We get God. We get love. And this is what shapes his people into not an army, but a family. A family of the Father. A family brought in by our older brother. This family who asked, Not what should I do, but who should I be? One of you this week uh, told me you got one of those scam texts. uh, And this text was pretending to be uh, our friend's boss. And this this boss told him, hey, I need you to go to the Apple store right now and buy $500 worth of Apple gift cards. We need to get these to some clients right away. And one of you, uh, our friend, uh, just started playing along with a scammer and said, oh, yes, sir, I can do that right away. Uh, And 30 minutes later, he replied that he had now emailed these active Apple gift cards to the actual boss's email account. And the scammer got really mad. Why would you do that? I did not tell you to do that. I told you to take pictures of these Apple gift cards and send them right to me. And our friend kept going for 15 or 20 minutes, just enjoying how frustrated the scammer was getting. And finally, he said to the scammer, dude, why are you doing this? What are you doing? Why are you trying to steal from people who are working hard? And they kept going. He's like, are you proud of this? Do you enjoy your life right now? Are you proud of taking and stealing from people? He said, God is not pleased with what you are doing. And you know what? I don't think you're pleased with this either. I can't imagine that you're happy with your life. In fact, what can I do to help you? This was like, now hours-long text conversation with this scammer in New York City. And this scammer broke, and he says, you know what? I feel terrible every single time I text someone. But this guy is so far behind in debt. He is so far behind in the New York City expenses and bills that he doesn't feel, or he's telling our friend, that he didn't feel like he has any other option to just like buy groceries for his wife and his children. And they kept texting for hours over the course of the afternoon. And our friend offered to connect him with friends and good churches in New York City. And then our friend finally, knowing who knows what this money was going to be used for, he got an Apple gift card and sent it to him. $25 cash, basically, that it could be used for whatever. But this was the generous love of God, who gives not just to the undeserving, but actually to the deceitful. This, our friend, is a person who has been wrapped up in the love of God that has come to him, the undeserving, the deceitful, and he gave this guy hours. He gave this guy 
not just what he thought was, I'm going to mess with this guy and make him frustrated, but I'm going to love this guy. And I'm so glad to be a part of people, of a people like you who act and react in this kind of way. But let's keep at it. Knowing our Savior, knowing the love of God in Christ, who has come not just to the undeserving, like the net neutral, but the enemies of God. That he might make us into the people who now not just don't hate him and who just don't hate others, but who love him with our whole heart, soul, and strength and mind. Passion for God and compassion for people. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your love toward us. And we pray that we might do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That in humility, that we might count others to be more significant than ourselves. We pray that you would help us to, each of us, look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. We pray that we might have this mind amongst ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but instead, Lord Jesus, you emptied yourself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in our likeness, the likeness of men, and being found in our form, you humbled yourself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for our sake. So God, we pray that this love of Christ that has come to us might continue to shape and transform us. We pray that this love of God in Christ might come and perhaps tonight for the first time invite enemies into your family to be forgiven, to receive mercy, to be born again into your family and to receive the life of the Spirit. We pray that you would transform us, conform us more and more into how Jesus acts, into how Jesus reacts, into how Jesus loves. And we pray this not just for our sake, not just for our well-being, but for the good of the city around us, for the world around us, that you might receive great glory. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.